You'll see uh, in the bulletin the passage uh, printed for us. It comes, as we'll see in a moment, I trust that a critical time in the ministry of Jesus as he turns his ministry towards Jerusalem for um, what becomes the, uh, the substantial bulk of all the records of the Gospels is what happened in that last week. We're not quite there yet, but let's see how Jesus treats those who would come and be part of his kingdom. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Amen. So let's uh, consider what we've just read about. When a man approached Jesus and wanted to follow him, Jesus said that he had nowhere to go, that foxes have their dens and birds have their nests, but essentially said there's, there's no room still. There's no room in the inn. Now we could assume, I think, that this fella uh, did not expect that reply especially if he had heard our Savior's famous invitation, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Of course, those are different kinds of rests, aren't they? But here's the thing, when we're approaching Jesus, when we're in the, in the, in the momentum of a uh, religious and spiritual instinct, we're not, we don't have theological dictionaries in our hands. We just want rest. And Jesus injects this man in the next two with not only confusion, but real dissonance, perhaps offense. Matthew tells us that uh, this fellow was a teacher. Luke doesn't say that, but there's nothing in the passage about any of these folks that would indicate that they're insincere or that there's some flaw in their spirituality or their engagement that's any different than the flaws in our spirituality and our engagement, which we all brought into this room, including the preacher today. Luke doesn't tell us what he did about any of them, really, probably, so that we can think about what we did or what we're doing with Christ's awkward call to follow him. The first man came to him. Jesus calls the next guy, the next guy's willing, but he wants to bury his father because, of course, he loved his father, and that's reasonable. But Jesus is not feeling sentimental at the moment, and he tells the man to stay on task. Go and preach the kingdom of God, he says, and let all those other dead people bury your dead father. That was Christ's stunning response to a grieving person. You would not let your pastor say that to you, whoever the Lord brings to this place. He will not be allowed to say that kind of thing to you. The next brave soul, or maybe he's just dense, uh, he's not paying attention. He just volunteers. So he came in, he's like one of us. He came in late to the sermon. He has a, lot, he has a latte. 
And he just didn't hear what was going on. And he said, I'll follow you, but let me say goodbye to my family. Um, And Jesus, probably thinking, have you not listened to the first two points of this brief message? Says, no. Don't come following after me and then decide to go do something else. We need to see passages like this um, the way that the participants would have first seen them. Remember what's going on in this encounter or these encounters. Jesus is not yet the resurrected Savior, the Son of God, the King of Kings, ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is not yet the Jesus, of course he is, I I want you to understand that, but in the minds of these three people, he's not yet the Jesus we serve 2,000 years later whose message has covered the earth. He is essentially a very popular rabbi. You could even say he's the next big deal rabbi. But he's still, although he has miraculous powers, And there's something about his teaching. There's nothing that's been demonstrated yet that makes it really easy to understand a response like this. And we would probably do well, after all these years, to think of encountering Jesus before he had been revealed in the fullness of his death and resurrection so that we might think about how we let him speak to us and what he has to say to us. And in this instance, these three unsuspecting souls, Jesus illustrates a fundamental reality that every one of us must face. If you are going to follow him, you can no longer belong here. That's what he's telling all three of these. You want to come and follow me, You can no longer be from here. But here's the catch. You can't leave either. And forever you'll be in this state of unbelonging, saying, as it were, there's no place like home because in a real way, right here, right now, there is no place like home. We don't get to be from here. And despite these few encounters, American Christians, of which I'm thankful to be one, Do not expect following Christ to mean that we need to disaffiliate with our homeland. That we need to be outsiders. That we can't really belong. No wonder, of course, we're anxious about the future. I think we should be, uh, let's not say anxious, concerned about the future. But we shouldn't be concerned about the future in a proprietary sense, like something was once ours and now it's lost. You know, as the world around us is now reminding us, this place was never ours. It was more comfortable once, but it still wasn't ours. In fact, if we're gonna follow Christ, the only place that's really ours is the future age that's already started but has a long way to go. So I want to look at unbelonging with Jesus and unpack these three encounters, and they all have um, dimensions that accent 
what's happening before and what's happening after in this passage. And then I want to talk pastorally a little bit about how we, we try to still belong here, which I'm as guilty of as anyone here. So um, I want us to learn to follow Christ, despite what he says in these passages, because what he's doing to these three and every three billion that read it afterwards is he's saying, okay, you follow me. I want you to know, I want you to have a sober understanding of what it means to follow me. And that's really what we're learning here. It's an odd kind of non-belonging because what it does is Jesus is saying everything that makes this place home for you and it would have been the ancient Near East and in, in that setting, now it's contemporary uh, West Coast America. He's saying you're not going to be comfortable. You, you, in, a, in a fundamental way, you can't be comfortable here. You can have peace and you can have rest, but you can't be comfortable. The, what this world will say about truth, about um, money, about rest, about sexuality, you're always going to belong, not belong with the world. And in my perspective as a pastor and just as a regular Christian, um, it, it was unfortunately easier for us to do that as Christians in the 80s. Now, I'm not saying upon theological reflection, it should have been easier. I'm just saying it was easier. And Jesus is trying to help us understand. And we should understand ourselves. If we want to follow Jesus, who are we following? Someone who had such a difficult life. We shouldn't expect following him will be comfortable in the way that we do. Like Think about our Savior, this person that all these folks are engaging with and that we're engaging with too. No one, no one ever fit in the world better than Jesus. He was the incarnate son of God, but because he fit in the world so well, no one stuck out like him. He was different from everyone. No one was at the same time as normal and as odd as our savior was. No one was as central to life and as radically isolated and excluded from it as Jesus was. He is the model for belonging and unbelonging. He came to his own, and what does John say? His own did not recognize him. That is what it means to follow Christ, to be in a place, a place that's like you, a place that's built for you in so many ways, but also so broken that you know you can never set up shop here. So let's take a look at these three encounters. Um, they seem rather random and um, almost, well, arbitrary would be a synonym for random, but, uh, but, but they really integrate well with what's happening. So let's take a look at the first one. The first one introduces the paradox of wandering and rest, which is essential to the Christian life. Jesus did indeed say, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Um, and that is true. In fact, he's the only one that can give you rest. But, but there is inherent in the newness of his kingdom and its 
it's a radical distinction from the kingdom of the earth, there is a disruption and an unrest in that. It invites you to move away from all those things that make you comfortable and rested and forsake them that you might find only a kind of rest in Christ. What, what's happening here is in the passage just before, just before this guy comes up to Jesus, he sends his disciples ahead of him to prepare the way. And he says, go through Samaria. And guess what the Samaritans say to him? Nope. To his, to his disciples he sent ahead. No, we don't want Jesus here. So that's the context. Jesus has just heard that news. And so when the guy comes, He's clearly thinking of that. Well, you want to follow me? We just found out I got nowhere to go. He also knows where he's going, which is Jerusalem. Because this passage just before it, um, like, the, like the more artful older versions say, Jesus set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. So Jesus, Jesus knows his journey has excluded him from rest. He can't rest in the towns of Samaria and his destination won't give him the kind of rest that we want. So the first seeker is told that if he follows the son of man, he will have no place to lay his head. The savior will give him rest, but not the way the world understands rest. What that means for you and I is really at the heart of what I hope you'll receive from this message. You can't be from here. I can't be from Seattle. I went, I'm from St. Louis, actually. It's where I grew up. And I went Friday night to the Mariners game against the St. Louis Cardinals, who I grew up watching. And I sat behind, we had some pretty good seats. I sat not right up close, but up a little bit on that first level behind the visitor's dugout. And I'm surrounded. There's a sea of red. By the way, the Cardinal fans, if you know them, they travel. I say they, it used to be we, but now it's they. We, they, they're, they're all over the place and I'm surrounded in front of me, next to me, behind me by people from my hometown just being reminded, especially after I looked for two days for my Cardinal hat and could not find it. I reminded that I'm in this weird place. I actually wanted the Mariners to win, but it's this place where there's, you can't be from here. In fact, the reason you can't be from here is that Jesus knows you'll never find rest here. No matter how comfortable your life is, no matter how well organized it is, no matter how many of the really unfathomable blessings that being an American in this age brings to us. They'll never work. You'll never have rest. So let's take a look at the second part. He's starting to explain this. The second guy, Jesus reaches out to him. It's like he sets this poor guy up. Explores... Um, the contrast between the living and the dead. Now I told you just in 953, Jesus talked about the Samaritans in 943, those are the verses ahead of us or, or behind us. 943, Jesus had just talked about again for the umpteenth time that he was going to go to Jerusalem and would be handed over and abused and die and come back to life. 
So building on the theme that, that we can't be from here, Jesus then moves on to the theme where he says, follow me. And the guy says, I'm all in, but my father died. And Jesus um, says this really stark, uh, has this really stark response, which is basically sort of a sophisticated, so what? I'm more important than your father's death. There's a lot, um, you can read a lot about what that meant. You know, some, some um, smart folks will remind us that that could take a year to bury your father in that culture because you would have to, there was a whole ceremony that ended when you took the, their bones from the, and put them in an ossuary from, you know, so it, there's a lot going on, but, but really none of that mitigates what's going on here. Jesus' response is making a divide between the people he's going to make alive and the people that are dead. Jesus says to this man, change your vision of humanity and life. What he says, interestingly, is um, go preach the gospel of the kingdom. Let the dead deal with their own kingdom. You tell the dead, you tell the dead, it's, I want us to look at that in a moment, that there is another kingdom, a kingdom of life. What's remarkable about this situation is Jesus, the guy says, Jesus says, will you follow me? And the guy says, well, I gotta go bury my dad. And he says, no, don't go bury your dad, go preach the gospel of the kingdom. He says, go tell the dead that there's another way to live. Jesus is, is dislodging us. Let the dead bury their own dead, but go instead and preach the kingdom of God. That is, go and tell them that Jesus, he says, essentially himself, of course, that I'm going to undo dead by dying. So there is compassion in Christ's words because his come follow me actually becomes go tell them. But even in going telling them, he's distinguishing between the life of the Christian and the death of the world. And then there's this last one. This, in some ways, I think this is the most severe. Um, you know, we've seen already there's a, uh, there's a um, contrast between wandering and rest, between living and the dead, and now there's embrace and exclusion or home, literally. I think the word is oikos. Um, this last man, and you mothers will, will appreciate this, he wanted to go say goodbye to mom, I'm sure. Dad too, probably, but we come in second, we know that. I, to my grandchildren, I am the guy that lives with Nana. That's basically, <laughs> that's basically, that's basically who I am. So, um, but Jesus wouldn't allow that. Now, it's not that Christ didn't appreciate and love family. It's not, it's not that, of course. It's not that he didn't understand grieving, as, as we know before. It's not that he didn't want to rest. It's that he's telling us that you have to unbelong. You, you cannot have another place, another family, another home. 
Jesus knew what it was to have a family and be excluded from them. He's crazy, they thought. His own people, his extended family of Israel, didn't recognize him and rejected him and crucified him. He knows what it's like to say goodbye to family. But he says something interesting. He tells this this man that he can't He can't put his hand to the plow and then turn around. Maybe he's referring to Lot's wife. Who knows? That could be an illusion. But what's really happening is that um, Jesus is tying his call to discipleship to a new inheritance. You would work your own land as a Jew there. You would work the land of your forefathers, ideally quite disrupted after the exile and the return, but the principle was still the same. This is our land, this is our home, this is our people's place. So telling him to engage the plow and not turn back would be somewhat confusing because he would maybe have gone back and done that. But Jesus is saying, no, there's there's another. There's another kingdom. There's another inheritance. There's another family that following me means belonging to. We looked at the way these two passages, two first uh, encounters are tied to what happens before. This one, um, interestingly, is tied to what happens afterwards, which Jesus sends out 72 to go preach the kingdom of God, to go put their hand to the plow, as it were. And he speaks of the, the harvest being plentiful. So in these three brief encounters, Jesus is telling all of us that following him means you can't stay here, but you can never leave. It's a different kind of way, a different being. The first is invited to a restless and restful wandering. The second to preach life to death. The last is told to let the world say goodbye to him and take his place in his father's inheritance. If you follow Christ, you can't be home here. You will wander always, but you'll find rest. You have a message to the dead to declare that there is really life. And there's no looking back. There's no other family. There's no other inheritance. Don't make your home here but join your father's inheritance. So with those observations of the text, let's consider just a few things. I'm gonna start by telling the story of my great-grandmother, Zoe Fitzgerald, who when she was 18, when she was 18, she left Ireland alone, sailed all the way across South America, and landed by her lonesome to start a new life in San Francisco. Now that is pretty impressive. But think about, think about how bad Ireland needs to be before that sounds like a good idea. And that's where courage comes from, and, and that's what's hard for us. Because it's really not that bad here, is it? Well, she lands in um, San Francisco, starts to build her own life. We don't really know a lot about that period, but then about, I don't know, I think it's seven or eight or whatever, probably 10 years later, she makes her way up to Butte, Montana, which is where she settled. And she's with her five daughters. 
and um, she goes to a place in Nevada called Gold Hill, Nevada, and she inadvertently gave us our family motto, the unofficial family motto. She told her daughters when they stayed there on their way to Butte to be civil but strange. I mean, she, so she, that could be, that should be the Christian's model. Be civil, but strange. Be kind, be loving, be like Christ, but never belong. Never live like this is your place. The promises of home are tenacious. We can imagine that Zoe would have, um, wondered if she'd ever see her family again, most of whom she didn't. You know, it was tough in Ireland, but known challenges are better than promises you have no idea if they'll ever be fulfilled. And we live in that liminal space ourselves too. The, the, the genius of Zoe, though, is that she actually had the integrity to leave when she left. We don't even get to leave when we leave. It's like, what if, what if she just like stayed, said, hey, I'm going to America, and she never left, and like three years later, she just talked like an American. You would all think she was weird. But that's what Jesus has us doing. This idea of, of not belonging while we stay. How do we, um, let's talk a little bit about the awkwardness of unbelonging. You and I belong here as much as anyone else. We have as much right to our civil liberties and our economy and our dreams and all these other things. Paul wasn't, in the book of Acts, and man, Paul wasn't um, shy about reminding officials that he was a Roman citizen. But this can never really be your place. And the more it changes, the more it's different, the more part of us wants to reach out for this foolish idea that there was a golden age. There was, you know, I have a friend, a friend of mine, an African-American guy, he used to be in our church. He's still in Seattle. He goes to a different church now. He was praying once in the 90s with a bunch of folks in, in our small, one of our small groups. And one of them said, Dear Lord, help us, help America get back to the 50s when it was godly. And they all finished prayer. And he looked at them and he said, What America did you grow up in in the 50s? <laughs> Now, there's, there's good and bad. There's glory and shame in every age. This age is no different. But we've got, to, we've got to understand that the world is doing us a favor by reminding us that it's not what we thought it was. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a section from um, Fathers and Sons by Dostoevsky, which is a very long book that if you read it, you feel compelled to find reasons to quote it, because it takes like, <laughs> it takes hundreds of hours to read it, and you have to read most pages twice, and I'm talking about English, I don't read Russian. But there's this guy there named Pavel, who is, uh, has a significant 
kind of accented role. And Pavel is um, a military hero, a landed gentry, who a couple of generations ago would have had this golden sunset to his life. But in his adulthood, probably around 40, serfdom was ended and everything changed. And so here's this man who can't give up his nobility, but he himself knows the gig is up and that this era is going to die with him and that's not in very long. So this is what, this is what he says about, about this guy. It looked as though the gentleman belonged to that class of idle landowners who used to flourish in the times of serfdom. He had unmistakably been at some time in good and fashionable society, but and had once good connections, had possibly preserved them indeed today, but after a gay youth becoming gradually impoverished on the abolition of serfdom, he had sunk into the position of a poor relation of the best class, wandering from one good old friend to another and received by them for his companionable and accommodating disposition as being, after all, a gentleman who could be asked to sit down with anyone, though of course not in a place of honor. That is evangelical Christianity in 2023. It used to be that we set the table. You know, we made the invitations. And now we don't get an invitation. And if we do, we certainly didn't pick the menu. And um, we're Pavels. The, the ironic thing is, is that, that we're Pavels because we're actually part of the future. You know, to enter into the kingdom of God is to enter into what will be. But when you do that, you will no longer look cool around what is. What we're learning, what we're learning is that... Um, Back in the 50s, in that golden era, when, when industry and theater and government and everyone else was signing on to the values that are super important, by the way, don't hear me saying that they're not issues of sexuality and justice and family, but <laughs> it was just convenient. You know, here's what you learn. Politicians and industry leaders do what works. And when it no longer works, they do something else. That's just the way they are. That's why the whole world sounds, advertising and everything else sounds like the world of today. That's what they were doing when it sounded like the world that maybe many of us were more comfortable with. So that's the awkwardness of unbelonging, you need to embrace that. But um, you need to be careful about the second thing. I'm asking you to embrace that and then resist this. Baptizing belonging, making it sound like we can truly finally belong here. Um, what does that look like? Well, the culture has filed for divorce against its Christian heritage. 
whatever you think of that heritage, complicated as it is. But, you know, we're the jilted lover and we still hope for some reconciliation. And the way we, we generally do that is that we, um, we curate the Christian message depending on the context that we're in. And um, here's, how, here's how that works. If, if you're in urban coastal America, you emphasize passages that highlight social justice, inclusion, and diversity, and you have a strategic emphasis on the church's sins, and there's a number of them to emphasize. If you're in the Midwest or a different part, a non-urban non area, um, you will emphasize uh, America's Christian past, personal responsibility, limited government, law and order, and sexual purity. It's like a drop-down menu. And here's the problem with the drop-down menu. The drop-down menu is our fabrication of Christianity. The fact is, Jesus' menu has all of those things on it. I'll give you an example of how this worked out today. I go to my coffee shop, and I'm walking by, and there's a homeless guy there, and I uh, had to pay the collar tax. You can't walk by a homeless guy with a collar on and not do anything. I mean, obviously, we should think clearly about that, whether we're wearing a collar or not. So I talked to him. I said, what's your, what's your name? And, you know, they always have a street name. He goes, you can call me Graham. And I said, okay, Graham, can I get you a sandwich and some coffee? He goes, yeah, that would be nice. He goes, call me John John. That's what the cops call me. I said, well, I'm not a cop. So I said, give me 10 minutes. And I go into my coffee shop and I order a sandwich. This is not, you'll see this is not about me being a great guy. I order a sandwich and a coffee and I bring it out there and, and I find that Graham John John is now next to the building where I spoke to him 10 minutes ago. He's now broken in the building and he's taking stuff from it. So in a span of 15 minutes, I'm like Mr. Nice Guy, and then I'm telling him to get out of there, and then he's not listening to me, and then I call the police. I'm like, there's a guy here breaking in. Of course, I don't know whatever happened to, you know, I left my sandwich. I didn't, I didn't like, not give the guy a sandwich. <laughs> but, but I'm thinking to myself on the way up here, this is like where we are. We don't get to choose which one. Like, I don't get to be the nice guy that bought the homeless dude a sandwich. But I also don't get to be the law and order guy that doesn't care if the guy that's robbing the place is hungry. So it was a very unsatisfying, confusing morning of Christian ministry. And, and I'm thinking to myself, well, that's exactly what I'm going to go up and talk about. You and I don't get to choose what's important to Jesus. He has told us. And if you're in a world, if you're in a world that um, is, is uh, broken and frustrated to the right, then you need to say things that sound like you're from the left. And if it's broken and frustrated from the left, you'll say things that, that sound like you're from the right. It's just the way of Christ. Everybody hated Jesus at the end of it all. And we can't, we can't baptize 
We have to embrace this disequilibrium, this unbelonging that we have. And we need to acknowledge that everything is important to Jesus. Gender issues, economic justice, abortion, actual justice, poverty, racism, all of those things. You know, what we would do well to learn is that Jesus has loved America abundantly. He's given us much more than we deserve. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else still. Okay? But, but Jesus is not committed to America. Who's he committed to? His people, many of whom are Americans. But, but let's not be American Christians. Let's be Christians who are American. And not belong here. So ask yourself these questions, and then we'll close with some G.K. Chesterton. How's that sound? Where do you look for rest? Where do you look for rest? That's a personal question and a contextual question. What kind of environment do you need to get to before you can be at rest? Second question is, think about this, what brings you life? Once you have rest, what do you do with the energy it gave you? What are you feeding off of? And finally, what do you want to harvest? Don't put your hand to the plow and then go to a different field to harvest something. So what gives you rest? What do you want rest for? That is, what's I'm going to do with rest? What's life to me? And secondly, what am I going to spend my days sowing and reaping? So ask those questions and then Listen to this good word from G.K. Chesterton, who, by the way, was English, lived, born, died. God was nobody was ever more British than G.K. Chesterton. But he was also a pretty good Christian. Listen to what he says. Modern, the modern philosopher told me again and again that I was in the right place, that I had still felt, but yet I still felt depressed, even in acquiescence to that idea. But I had heard from the gospel that I was in the wrong place. And when I heard that, my soul sang for joy like a bird in spring. The knowledge found out and illuminated forgotten chambers in the dark house of infancy. I knew now why. This is a bizarre Chestertonian saying. I knew now why the grass had always seemed to me as queer as a green beard of a giant and why I could feel homesick at home. He was saying that there was something about him, in spite of the fact that this materialistic world that he was in, told him, of course, you're right from here. You're from here and for here. And it made perfect sense, but there was something about him that always looked a little weird, like the beard of a giant. And despite belonging, he never felt at home. What a gift if you have that feeling. The joy of belonging and the sorrow of unbelonging, that's the inheritance of the Christian. And you should embrace that dissonance because that means you're close to Jesus and his way and maybe even by his grace following him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies. I pray you would... um, 
Help us to know what it means to be in this great place you've given us, but broken deeply. To make it better as we can, but to know it'll never be right as it should be. Help us, Lord, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.